We've all heard some great lawyer jokes. Trust us, we've heard them, all of them. But without sounding too adversarial, lawyers are humans too. In fact, that's the main theme of this podcast. Welcome to The Human Lawyer, the time and place where we have conversations with lawyers focusing on the intersection of the existential and the practical. A trendsetter, a trend challenger, and a trend analyzer, Professor Jen Leonard leads programs on innovation in the future of the profession at the University of Penn Law School. Her work takes her to places like the renowned consulting firm McKinsey, where she has discussed topics such as how great it could be to be a lawyer. Jen imagines a world in part where lawyers are the connective connective tissue of a corporate enterprise. Jen's professional passion is having long overdue conversations about topics around professional satisfaction, accessibility of legal services, inequitable representation, and antiquated perceptions. In life, Jen is Pennsylvania to the core, a graduate of Penn State undergrad and UPenn Law School. She's a volunteer and gracious board member at the Caring Center and Exemplary Early Childhood Education Center in Philly's Mantua neighborhood. So for Jen, her investment in the future of America doesn't begin in law school. She's there at the start. She is a past recipient of UPenn's Beverly Edwards Memorial Award for Excellence in Leadership. And today, Jen continues her path in leadership, guiding today's conversation on change trends and her observations of the profession in the years since she's invested in this innovative work. Welcome to the Human Lawyer Podcast, Jen. Thank you so much, Kevin. That was an amazing introduction. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> well, you're welcome. It's a pleasure to write an intro about your life. Uh, these, are, these are the things that show up on the internet. Um, so yeah, like where to start? So um, I guess maybe the Pennsylvania roots, is that true? Did you grow up? Or are, you, are you Pennsylvania born and bred? Totally Pennsylvania. I would say I consider myself maybe a little bit more Philly born and bred. Um, I've been in the Philadelphia area my whole life, but I certainly traveled a little bit to the West when I went to Penn State. But uh, yeah, I have local roots and I love Philly and I don't imagine myself ever leaving. Um, That's so interesting that is it is it true of Philly people that they'll claim Philly before Pennsylvania? I think so. I think so. And it's not a dig on Pennsylvania. It was just interesting when you read my intro. I've never thought of myself as Pennsylvania to the core. I have always thought of myself as Philly to the core. (laughs) And so what? So it's interesting. I think because Philly just has such a distinctive culture compared to anywhere else. Uh, So I don't know. I'm just very much an adherent to the culture here and I think it has really influenced my personality and everything that I do so <laughs> yeah and like so I, I'm pretty ignorant as to Philly's culture other than like the Liberty Bell and mm-hmm. Eagles fans which like Eagles fans are sort of their own body of existence that their reputation precedes them so how would you um, describe Philly's culture for me Philly has the perfect blend of grittiness, right? Our mascot for our hockey team is literally named Gritty. Um, Education, intellectual curiosity. Um, We're known for our universities and colleges. We're known for our medical institutions. We've got culture. Um, We have the Barnes Museum here, the Art Museum here. We have a whole avenue of the arts in Center City with lots of theaters and um, all sorts of creative expression. And 
I, I think the people here are just authentically human people. And I know this is the human podcast, but I just have met more interesting people in Philly, um, you know, that have enriched my life in so many different ways. And I hope that it contributes to having a little bit more of a holistic understanding of the human experience from across all those dimensions. Love that. So then you weather is not great. Yeah. I will. All right. <laughs> Everything's trade-off. Um, <laughs> um, how about, uh, so how, when you graduated law school, was this, did you, did you always know that you wanted to stay in academia or were you, um, is it, did the path sort of find you? The path definitely found me. I had no designs on being in higher education or an academic environment necessarily. I went to law school when I was very young. Um, I came straight through from undergrad. I think I was 21 when I started law school, which is stunningly young when I look back on it. So I, I don't think I had a really fully formed idea of what I would do. I had a very unsophisticated idea of what lawyers did generally that was based entirely on pop culture and literature. Um, and so what I realized over time is that my family's sort of business, if you will, is really education. I come from a long line of educators. My dad was a Philly public school teacher. My aunt runs a daycare center in the DC area. My mom worked at a university and I realized that I really enjoy supporting people in the learning journey and helping see them come alive and be stimulated by new ideas. And so I actually, after I was practicing for a while, started a master's program at Temple to become a high school teacher. And then um, for a lot of reasons, ended up not going down that path, but knew from that experience that I wanted to teach. And then I had the opportunity to go, come back to the law school I attended and build co-curricular programming to support new lawyers, and then ultimately teach in the formal curriculum around topics that excite me and I hope excite our students. How long have you been at the law school? 10 years. So a lot's changed in 10 years. I, I'm curious, like, um, that sort of coincides from my exit as a law student. I'm curious, like, how... Um, how today's law students might be different from when you first started, if at all. I think you're right that a lot has changed. And I think students today, as a, as a generalization based on their average age, have come of age in a period that is much more tumultuous than the period in which I grew up and started law school. Um, I think they are, as compared to my cohort of law students, much more socially active, much more interested in deploying their law degree in new and interesting ways, even if they are working in the private sector, having impact even in that work. And I think we're seeing a lot of change in that portion of the economy, right, with um, environmental social governance programs and corporations. There's no longer as clear a divide as there was when I was a student between you're going into private practice or you're going in to serve the public interest. I think students are interested in um, taking a multilateral approach to the way that they're thinking about their degree. And I think that they are, in my experience, teaching them, and it might be self-selecting because I teach students in classes that focus on innovation and creativity, but I think that they are more fearless about 
playing around with new ideas, um, experimenting, iterating, thinking about how we can do things differently as a profession. And part of that might just be that we're able to give them the tools now because we're becoming more sophisticated about how to drive innovation and then be able to teach them and give them you know, a risk-free place in a classroom to start thinking about it so that they can take those mindsets and skills into the profession. So I would say more social engagement, um, a more interesting and complex way of thinking about how to deploy their law degree and more fearlessness about wanting to do things differently and questioning the status quo and being curious. Yeah, that's super interesting. And it, it as you were responding, I was thinking about your, it was, it was the Q&A with McKinsey. And uh, yeah, I mean, I took the connective tissue word from that Q&A. Um, and as someone who works, uh, there's another phrase in that um, Q&A that was interesting to me. It was like a tech trust. It was like, like a, uh, some type of, some type of picture of, of how a lawyer would be, could be embedded in, um, in a more holistic conversation. And I think um, as a lawyer who does work in like a private enterprise and a software-based company, it is it is interesting because you can find like you you sort of know as a lawyer the historical um, understandings and perception of how a lawyer behaves in a business and like as an advisor of risk, but then you sort of get into more operational decisions and and the, how that line blurs and whether that's an acceptable role. And it, it, I think all of this stuff is like, if you're really thinking about it, it can, it can both make your job more challenging because you're like, should I be doing this? Is this the right thing? Um, is there support for this? Am I stepping out of line? But I think it speaks to sort of the fearlessness that maybe this next cohort will help us usher in you know, that change. Because I think right now, in my experience, it's a, it's a gray area. Yeah, it's interesting that you are talking about that because I just had dinner last night with two friends who are very experienced lawyers, um, both at big law firms. But the actually the tech trust idea is not mine. That's my friend and colleague, Rachel Dooley's. And she was one of the people that I was talking with. And we were talking about this idea of you know, the trusted advisor and the business partner and the, what is the role of the lawyer in-house. Um, and I think that that's one thing that we're doing a better job of on law school campuses of training, obviously training law students to think critically, um, to analyze situations and identify risk, uh, to be able to counsel their clients around that risk. But I think to your point, the role of advising a company or advising an organization is much more interesting and complex than just risk identification and analysis. It is understanding what your client's business objectives are in the private sector or understanding what their life objectives are if you're serving the public interest, and then assessing where are the risks and which risks are tolerable and how can I work in a more connected way with my client to help them solve problems while mitigating the really big risks that would derail them from achieving their goals. So that that's how I think about the connective tissue piece. And I think the, the tech trust idea that Rachel's developed is 
we want to have a culture where people want to come to their lawyers and ask them to be partners in developing, whether it's technology or a new business model. We don't want to be perceived as the naysayers or the people that come in at the end and say, you can't do what you want to do. We want to be a part of it um, and help you do it well. How did, so amazing. Uh, how did you get um, connected with McKinsey? How did that sort of Q&A and... Um, is that like, a, to me, very reputable. They're sort of like internationally known. Like if you're, if you're a consultant at McKinsey or if you have McKinsey in your, in your fold, you're probably doing something interesting and challenging. Again, I was connected with Rachel Dooley during the pandemic and we, we were connected by a mutual friend who knew that we were both really interested in creativity and the law and how those two can intersect. And um, we sort of emerged as best buddies in trying to think about creativity in the law because we spent so much time on Zoom calls during the height of the pandemic when you really could not leave your house and became increasingly excited about the idea that there were other people in the industry thinking in this way. And so that was uh, the primary contact that I had uh, to become interested in the work that she and her colleagues were doing at McKinsey, which as you say, is always forward looking and cutting edge. Um, so that that was the, the connection there. How about maybe a, a pivot on the creativity piece? Uh, how does that show up in your personal life? Because there's the old saying that zebras don't change their stripes. So <laughs> if, you, if, you, if you're if you're creative in one space, maybe you're also creative in another space or you seek it out in different ways. That's really interesting. I actually don't think of myself as a very creative person, um, but I've had the opportunity in my role to participate in some executive education programming over at Wharton, um, some of the leaders in innovation strategy and management. And I learned that most people aren't actually creatives in the sense that you're generating wild, new, bold ideas all the time. But what we can be doing is helping ourselves understand that we are all born with creative capacity. And if you watch, and you read the, the McKinsey Q&A, if you watch kids at play, they do all sorts of testing, experimenting, um, they're singing, they're dancing, they're painting, they're playing sports, they're learning, they're reading, they're doing all the things you need to stimulate creativity. So we naturally have that within us. It's just that over time, for a lot of different reasons, that's either deprioritized or we don't have the time to devote to that. And I think because we don't adequately help people understand, in my opinion, that the thing that sets humans apart from the bots that, that we're seeing increasingly in our environment is our ability to be creative and make new connections and find new ideas. Um, so I think that the pandemic for me did help me break out of sort of a very structured way of thinking, because it's funny to think of me as a creative. I'm such a rules follower, people pleaser. I mean, that is deeply embedded in my DNA, but everything became unmoored and disorienting. And that offered opportunities to say what does make sense and what doesn't make sense about the way that we live our lives and work and how can we think of things in new ways. So I focus more on creating frameworks that allow people to actually engage or re-engage with their creativity. And so it's it's more about that than it is that I have some sort of naturally creative juices flowing through me because I don't think I do. <laughs> yeah. All right. Fair enough. Mm -hmm. You talk about kids and like uh I know that 
place you serve on the board. I think from uh, your bio, it says you have a family. Mm -hmm. So yeah. you, have, you have kids of your own. I have a six-year-old girl and a seven-year-old boy. I also have an 18-year-old stepson and a 20-year-old stepdaughter. So I have um, lots of kids in my life and they definitely um, spark your creativity. Being a parent just sparks creativity. My friends and I joke all the time that you're just constantly trying new things on the fly, seeing what will work, seeing what will get a response. And that is actually what you do in innovation. <laughs> You're yeah. throwing lots of things out there and trying to learn over time what works and what doesn't. Yeah, that, um, I feel like, I feel like we're all sort of informed by our current season of life. And it's sort of like the um, recency bias, mm -hmm. you know, like the, th the things that are happening right now in day to day, like seems like it's everything it's hard to hard to think about what happened a long time ago and hard to project what's going to happen in the future i say that as a long lead-in to say like new parent with a two and a half year old son and it's so interesting to when you talk about creativity you think a lot about like freedom and the, the unbridled freedom that, that that kids tend to live with and how um how we're sort of desensitized or we're sort of uh, I don't know that, that I, I think about how life sort of works. And, and so when I look at someone's life, like yours or the work that you do and it, in some ways, it's like trying to open that back up for people, open back up the idea that maybe the sandbox is a little bit bigger. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think so. And you know, I'm curious to know from you what you think the reason is that underlies the shift from when we're two and a half year olds, when we're six and seven, when we're 18 and 20, and then when we become adults, why do you think we, if you think we lose our creativity or our ability to deploy it, why do you think it is? I, ooh, this is a good question. I think, I think part of it is fear. Um, I think when you live longer, and you inevitably make mistakes as we all do. Um, it, we're sort of an evolution, we're an evolved being. So we then will start to make decisions to avoid or protect from uncertain outcomes. And, and I think um, the other thing too, is especially in the professional space and especially in the remote space, um, which there are so many good things that attach with that, but building trust and having in-person connection is harder and harder. Um, and so part of being, this is just, I don't usually, I'm not usually in this position. So <laughs> I'm sorry, I turned the tables on you. Yeah. So, uh, so because of that, I think um, in order to be fearless, you, I think you need to trust that the person who would be evaluating that the decision um, is not going to hold you accountable or is, go, is not going to use your failure as leverage against you. Um, and, yeah. and I think it, I think there, that, that's, it's a, that trust um, and connection and is, is a big part of it. And honestly, you know, not to be like too boomer on this because I'm not a boomer, but I do feel like social media, though, is, gosh, it's a blessing and it's a curse. Um, 
And it really, I think, it has impacted the world in some ways that has really made, closed us off um, in a really unintended way in the sense that social media was designed to connect us all. Uh, but funny how that may not be working anymore. Well, I think that's right. And I, a couple of things that you said um, connect with some of the work that I do, which is in my class that I teach with students on creativity and innovation. We talk a lot about the importance of psychological safety in your environments for creating new ideas. And I think it's so important. And you and I and everybody who's been in a professional environment can point to times where we felt comfortable sharing ideas or taking risks um, and times when we didn't. And part of the challenge around innovation in the legal profession, I think, is that we haven't yet mastered cultivating psychologically safe environments that are um, reduced risk places to share new ideas. And I think a lot of it, like you said, is rooted deeply in the fear of being judged, the fear of being perceived as um, not, you know, intelligent enough or, um, you know, not professional enough or not adhering enough to the standards or um, the culture. And so that's a big part of it. And what I draw from is work in the healthcare industry, um, because sometimes you'll get an eye roll from lawyers about psychological safety. They think it sounds like some sort of, you know, new age, you know, loosey goosey thing. But actually, there is a lot of research in the healthcare industry about how important psychological safety is in a healthcare setting, um, because you want people who are working around you to feel empowered and encouraged to share things that they're concerned about or things they're seeing in the environment that might be a risk to the patient. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot to learn from the healthcare industry or, or even NASA. Um, after the Challenger explosion, NASA did a, a complete overhaul in the way that it thinks about its launch protocols. And avoiding groupthink or avoiding the desire to sort of please everybody by making sure that the, the launch happens over making sure that the launch happens safely. So that's important. I think the other piece that you're talking about, and I'm, I'm really glad you raised it because it made me think about it more deeply, is we're all struggling with this return to office hybrid work. What makes sense? When do we need to do it? And I think you're right. In some ways, virtual environments have created new connections. Like Rachel, I was talking about, we would have never met and sparked all these new conversations, but for the pandemic and but for Zoom. But when we're most creative together is when we're in a room with a whiteboard and some dry erase markers and some post-its and you have the chance to really be in a three-dimensional space together. And so identifying when you need creative three-dimensional problem solving and creating space for that and when you don't is the challenge of the day, I think. Our, our uh, Dean of Engineering here at Penn, I think has referred to it as spontaneous human collisions, <laughs> which is such an engineering way to describe it. But that's where great ideas are born. And some of that is lost, like you're saying, both in virtual world and especially on social media, which are you know, fleeting social connections, but not real deep engagement. Mm -hmm. And thank you for all of that. Um, not to throw social media under the bus too much because I feel like it, in, indirectly that's how we got connected. Because I think um, I had connected with Heidi Brown, uh, who is, she's been a, a wonderful co-conspirator over the years. Who I just and saw yesterday and I got to see her in three dimensions and is, as you know, a leading expert on fear for lawyers. Yeah, and then she, 
she connected me to you. And so here we are. And uh, maybe as, as the parting shot or um, like, um, what do you see, what do you see as next for your work? What are some of the things that you're really hoping to, um, or let me ask it two parts. You can get, you can choose, choose your path. Um, either that, your, your work professionally or sort of what you're hoping to develop personally um, mm. outside of work, um, sort of in this post-pandemic uh, world. So I, I think a couple of things. I have a lot of exciting things that I want to do on the horizon. I'd like to work more with organizations in the legal profession that are interested in learning more about creativity and how to stimulate it in their organizations and how they think about the next chapter of service and client centricity and design thinking and um, all of those things. I'm also really excited. I'm not an expert on this, <laughs> to be clear, but I'm really excited about generative AI and its capacity to change the way that we work and the way that we live. And I want to teach more about being thoughtful and creative in using AI and emerging technologies to improve legal services and to improve the quality of life for lawyers. Um, I see huge potential for lawyers to actually be doing a lot more of the work they came to law school to do, the problem solving, the client engagement, um, the, the really sophisticated understanding of all of the emerging legal frameworks that we're going to have to be responding to with our clients. And so that's an area where I really just want to learn as much as possible and then play with the technology and play with it with our students and see what they're seeing and what are the ethical implications. And like you're saying with social media, I feel like we've had a period where we've learned some really hard lessons about some unintended consequences of that technology. And this technology is on a whole different level and the implications could be grave and they can also be really exciting. So I think more engagement with more stakeholders and spreading the word about creativity and innovation and learning about this new emerging tool that I think will change a lot of things. Yeah, I love I love your your focus on like AI and whether it's chat GPT or whatever, and how that might actually unlock the whole human experience of what people endeavored when they decided to either be a lawyer or go to law school. Um, and, uh, certainly here for that. Um, and thank you for saying yes to a stranger um, <laughs> and being a guest on the podcast. We need to recognize that this is possible because of the hard work and support of the well-run media team. They make this easy. And speaking of easy, big thanks to Huga Coworking for access to their studio. And of course, the lawyers who agree to take time out of their busy, busy schedules to be here, even though we're sure they have better things to do. So thanks for saying yes.